From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you consider all the other animals on this planet, human beings are unique. We're not the strongest. We may not even be the smartest, but we are the most dominant species on earth. Unlike chimps or dolphins or elephants, we're able to cooperate in massive numbers. That's how we achieve big complex things like agriculture, urban planning, healthcare, space flight, lots of stuff. But of course, mass cooperation can also lead to dark places like war and oppression and ecological destruction. So when you tally up the total human record, it's a mixed bag. The thing that makes all of this uniquely human, the good and the bad, is that it's possible because of the stories we tell ourselves, the institutions that govern our lives the most, religions, nations, even money itself. These are all just stories. And they work incredibly well because we believe them and others believe them. And when enough people agree to believe the same thing, almost anything is possible. I'm Sean Illing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Yuval Noah Harari. He's a professor of history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he's written some hugely popular books over the past decade, like Homo Deus in 2016, and Sapiens, one of my all-time favorites, in 2014. In all of his work, Harari takes a zoomed-out view of human history, about as zoomed out as it gets. And he really tells the story of us in a way few people can or have. In his new book, Unstoppable Us, Harari reframes some of his findings for younger readers. And this idea that our imagination is our real superpower is where we started the conversation. Well, if you look at individual human beings, we are not particularly strong or smart compared to other animals. If you put me alone on an island with a chimpanzee and an elephant and a pig and whatever, I wouldn't place my bets on myself. What really makes us special is that we are the only animal that can cooperate flexibly in very, very large numbers. Chimpanzees can cooperate, say, 50 chimpanzees, 100 chimpanzees, but they can't cooperate in thousands and millions. Humans can do that, and all our big achievements in history 
from building the pyramids to flying to the moon to building a healthcare system, it is all based on large-scale cooperation, not on an individual genius. And then you ask, okay, so what enables us to cooperate in millions when the chimpanzees can't do that? And the answer is stories and storytelling. Because if you examine any large-scale human cooperation, you always find a story at the basis. It's most obvious in the case of things like religions that, you know, millions of people coming together to build a cathedral or to wage a war, a holy war, a crusade, because they all believe in some mythology. You can never convince thousands of chimpanzees to come together to fight a war against another group of chimpanzees by promising to them that if they die in the war, they will go to chimpanzee heaven and they receive lots of bananas and coconuts and stuff like that. No chimpanzee will ever believe that. But humans believe it, which is why we are more powerful than the chimps. But it's not just religions. This is the easiest example. Yep. It's also modern economic systems. Corporations like McDonald's or Google or Facebook, they are just imaginary stories in our minds. 50,000 years ago, if you wanted to get a bunch of people to cooperate, you had a shaman tell them a story about the guardian spirits of the tribe or something. And today we have our own shamans called lawyers and bankers, and they tell us stories about these guardian spirits, corporations, which exist only in our imagination. But as long as, you know, hundreds of thousands of people believe in it, they all work for the corporation. And it's the same with money. You know, if you think, what is the value of money? It has no objective value. You can't eat it. You can't drink it. If you give a chimpanzee choice between an apple and a bag with a million dollars, every chimpanzee will choose the same thing, the apple. Dollars are worthless unless you believe in the stories that the bankers and finance ministers and so forth are telling us. I often get bemused looks from people when I say that liberalism and humanism are secular religions. Mm -hmm. And I would call myself a liberal and a humanist. So when I say that, it's not to discredit them. I just mean, and I think you would agree, we made them up. You know, Not all ideologies or religions are equally wise or equally useful or equally good, yeah. but they're still stories. And the only basis for them is human consensus. Yes. I mean, human rights, for instance, I mean, people say, I don't know about abortion rights, that uh, women have a right to an abortion. Now, it's inaccurate to speak in those terms. You can say that women should be granted the right to have an abortion, but it's not something out there in the objective world, the same way that people have DNA or there are atoms in our body, the same way we have rights. We don't. No animal has rights. Rights is something that we agree upon. It's our creation. It doesn't come from the laws of nature. Now, the great thing about liberalism is that it acknowledges its own kind of invented nature, and therefore it has a built-in mechanism to correct its own mistakes. The problematic thing about many religions is that they don't acknowledge that they were invented by human beings, and therefore they don't have a self-correction mechanism. You know, you compare the U.S. Constitution to the Ten Commandments, and both these documents endorse slavery. Everybody knows that about the U.S. Constitution, that when it was initially written, it endorsed slavery. But it's the same with the Ten Commandments. If you look at commandment number 10, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, 
or your neighbor's field or your neighbor's slaves. God has no problem with somebody having slaves. God only has a problem with somebody coveting the slaves of somebody else. Now, with the U.S. Constitution, it's very common today to abuse the founding fathers that they talk about freedom and had slaves and, and treated women terribly and so forth. But there was one good thing about them. They acknowledged that this is just a human creation. We might be making some mistakes. We are not infallible. So they included in the Constitution a mechanism to correct the Constitution, to amend it. And eventually the Constitution was amended. Now, the Ten Commandments, we don't have the Eleventh Commandment, which says, if you discover any mistake in the previous Ten Commandments, if 60% of you agree on that, then we can amend it. No, we are still stuck with the same text as it was thousands of years ago. So the great thing about liberalism is not that this is not a human invention, just the opposite. It is a rare human invention that acknowledges that it was created by humans yeah. and therefore has a mechanism to amend itself. Well, it recognizes its own contingency and people yeah. that can be very uncomfortable. You know, we, it's funny that we have this obsession with facts and truth as the linchpin of our liberal democratic society. And I get it. It is important to live in some kind of shared reality, but ultimately it's our fictions that drive us. And it just seems like a very non-trivial thing to understand if you're trying to make sense of the political world. Yeah, I mean, facts are important, but ultimately they don't control politics. The people don't unite around the facts. I mean, you can't build a political party around E equals MC square. It's true. It explains so much of the universe, but in political terms, it's irrelevant. What really rules politics is the stories. If you want to be successful politically, you need to be a good storyteller just kind of, you know, flooding people with facts and statistics and all that, it won't get you very far. The only thing that really displaces one story is a better story. You can puncture a lot of holes in the previous story, exposing all the factual mistakes and errors and so forth. People will still hold on to it. What would really cause them to let go of it is if you give them a better story to replace it with. Yeah, and speaking of stories, in the 20th century, we had two, maybe three competing grand stories. Three big stories, yeah. About the direction of history. And, and I think you and I would agree that in the end, the liberal capitalism story basically won out. Not that history ended, but it did kind of win out, provincially at least. Yeah, in competition with communism and fascism, it won out. Yeah. But I heard you say back in 2017... Mm -hmm that you felt like we had lost or were losing our common stories. I'm curious what story or stories you had in mind. Is it the liberal story that is dying or something different altogether? Uh, no. I mean, after coming victorious from the big ideological battles of the 20th century, now liberalism is under assault, including in its own kind of centers of power in the United States, in Western Europe, in, in places like that. There is no new story that replaces it. We are entering a period really of chaos. Again, if you look, for instance, at the, I don't know, the divide in the United States, it's not really ideological like it was in the 20th century. The ideological differences between Democrats and Republicans today are much, much smaller 
than the ideological battles of 50 years ago or 100 years ago. They agree about almost all the important things. They both agree on the value of freedom and of equality. Nobody comes out openly and says, I don't believe in equality. The basic test, if you want to test who is really a liberal in historical terms, you have four questions to answer, four simple questions. Do you think people should have the right to choose their own government? Do you think people should have the right to choose their own religion? Do you think people should have the right to choose their own profession? And do you think people should have the right to choose their own spouse? If you answered yes to all four questions, or even three out of these four questions, congratulations, you are a liberal. You're liberal. Even if you hate liberals, you are a liberal. Now, it's hard to understand it because almost all conservatives have adopted this liberal worldview. In the 18th century, a conservative would not agree that people should have the right to choose their government. Absolutely not. We must have a king in the grace of God. Similarly, if you think about choosing your profession, then for most of history, the conservative's view was, no, you are born to a peasant family. You will be a peasant. You are born, your father was a cobbler. You will be a cobbler. You have no freedom for economic advance. And similarly, with regard to spouse, of course, I mean, you should marry the person that your parents and elders and the uh, uh, people in church decided that is good for you. You don't marry for love. And today, very few people, even conservatives, would endorse such conservative views. The average conservative is actually more liberal on many, many issues than the average liberal was 50 or 60 years ago. You think about, I don't know, like gay rights. So there is actually almost a majority of Republicans who support gay marriage. You know, in the 60s, even the radical fringes of the Democratic Party would not think about something like gay marriage. So it's funny to say, but when I look from outside of the United States, it's hard for me to understand what is the difference between Democrats and Republicans. I know the hot button subjects like abortion and gun control and that, but in long-term historical perspective, this is small stuff. This is not important enough to destroy American democracy over this. And American democracy is being destroyed. So if it's not ideology, what is it about? I mean, I don't know the answer. You know, if in 200 years, some school kid has a history exam and there is a question, what was the first American civil war about? That's easy. It's about slavery. And then the second question, what was the second American civil war about? What's the answer? I mean, was it really about gun control? Was it really about regulating environmental pollution? Was it really about who gets to go into which toilets? It doesn't seem important enough. I mean, these are important issues, absolutely, but not important enough to destroy the American Republic over them. I think in a lot of ways, we're still using the same language, but the words are coming to mean very, very different things. And that process is accelerating. And and at some point, those founding myths of that paradigm that we're all sort of operating in will come apart. What do you think happens to a, a community or a country or a society once it stops believing in shared myths or its founding myths? Hmm. I mean, it has three choices. You can split the country, you can have a civil war, or you can have a dictatorship. A dictatorship doesn't need consensus among all the parts of society. But you cannot have a democracy 
in a place where people hate each other and see each other as their enemies and can't agree on any common story. You can have political rivalries. That's absolutely fine. Democracy is all about that. People have different opinions. They vote for different parties. That's perfectly okay. But if you start seeing the other side, not as your political rivals, but as your enemies, they are out to destroy us. They are out to destroy our way of life. Then democracy is simply impossible. You can't force democracy on such a situation. Even if you have elections, elections are just a ritual in this sense. People will do anything to win the elections. And if they lose, they don't accept the results because this is a war. You can't end, like, you know, I don't know, the Arab-Israeli conflict. You can't end it by an election. Like we do a referendum in the Middle East, 200 million Arabs and like 7 million Jews would vote in the referendum. The Jews would never accept it. So, okay, there are 200 million of them. But if you don't have a common basis, and a common basis means that you think the other side cares about you. The other side is not your enemy out to destroy you. If somebody is trying to destroy you, the numerical differences don't matter. If there are 200 millions of them and 10 millions of us, it only means we have to fight harder. I don't want to get into your meditation practice because (laughs) that is something that people always ask you about. I'm only mentioning it because the reason you do it, I've heard you say, is to try to be in touch with reality, with what's happening right now. Yeah. And what you're getting at is one of my long-standing worries, which is that we are living in an increasingly virtual world Yes, that is less and less rooted in a physical space with other people. And these shared stories, these shared myths that we tell each other and believe work in part because they're connected to a lived experience. But when we're not sharing experiences, mm. I don't know what the basis of collective action can be. I mean, maybe I'm suffering from a failure of imagination here. Mm-hmm. but I don't see it. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think that this is spot on. I think that when people live in different virtual realities and not in the common physical, biological reality, this is a recipe for disaster. This is why I think, for instance, talk about the metaverse and things like that. This is so dangerous. And it's not new. The things people don't realize about virtual reality is a very, very, very old invention. It's called religion. Again, religion is basically virtual reality that you construct not with the help of technology, that you construct in your imagination. And again, different people can construct completely different virtual realities in their imagination, even if they share the same physical space. Like again, going back to my country, so I think about a place like Jerusalem that Palestinians and Israelis are fighting over. They are not fighting over the physical city. The physical city is not worth fighting for. The physical city is, you know, like any other city in the world. It's like Pittsburgh. It's like, I don't know, uh, Cincinnati. It has buildings and stones and trees. And there is enough space to build houses for everybody. It's not a case that there is really an objective lack of land. So you have to fight for the land. No, there is enough land to build houses and schools and hospitals for everybody. But you are putting on virtual reality glasses. And you're suddenly seeing that Jerusalem is full of angels and demons and holy places and sacred stones and whatever. And this is what you fight about. You don't fight about the actual stones. You fight about what you see in virtual reality. All these stories that you attach to the stones and the trees, but that actually exist only in your imagination. Now, if everybody agrees on the same story, then that's fine. 
But if you have, again, Muslims and Jews, each living in their own virtual reality, you get a war. I happen to think, and I've made this argument in different ways in recent years, that I think a very difficult reality we're facing is that the world, perhaps, has become too fragmented and too pluralistic to support any kind of meaningful moral or social consensus. People have always relied, as you've been saying, on these shared narratives to map their experience of the world and connect their lives with other human beings. But because so much of life now takes place virtually, and because there's so many competing narratives and so many media technologies that flood our minds with individualized content, I guess I wonder if human societies have become too large and too fragmented to operate the way they always have, and we just haven't adapted. I don't think it's impossible, but it definitely needs adaptation. It is good that more people can voice their opinions and interests and so forth. Yeah. I don't miss the 1950s or 1960s. Like you had, I don't know, two television channels and everybody watched the same story. You know, I'm gay. There was nobody gay on television back then. So it's not necessarily good that you have just a single channel that everybody watches. But the problem when you allow more people to say their thing, more voices, then it gets chaotic and it's difficult. Initially, you think, okay, we have this table with only white men around the table deciding everything. Let's have some more people be more inclusive. Let's have some women, some people of color. Let's have some LGBT people. And it will be great. And it's not. Because suddenly these people come and they have opinions. And they have interests you didn't think about. And they want to change the rules. And it becomes chaotic. But the answer is not, okay, okay, okay. Get them out of the room. Let's go back to the 1950s. The answer, okay, let's work harder to build a better consensus. And it can be done. You know, in the 1960s, it also seemed that the Western world, that Western democracies are falling apart, whereas authoritarian regimes like the Soviet Union seemed solid as rock. They will last forever. In the 1960s, again, the ideological battles were much bigger than they are today. The civil rights movement, the sexual revolution, all that. There was a lot more violence in the streets, political assassinations, presidents, presidential candidates, Martin Luther King, so forth, riots in the streets. If you look at the world in 1968, you can easily imagine that the US and Britain and France, they're going to collapse. Uh, the future belonged to the Soviets. In Paris, the whole city is rioting. In Leningrad, everything is quiet. You fast forward 20 years, it's the Soviet Union that collapsed. Because the Western world has found a way to build not a perfect society, but a more inclusive society, whereas the internal tensions in the Soviet Union just led to its collapse. So I don't think it's a hopeless situation. I don't think we should go back. I do think we should not just regulate the technology, but also kind of teach ourselves how to live in this new environment. It's often hard to find the right terms to describe our current political divisions. Is our binary way of thinking out of date? That's what I'll ask Yuval Harari after a short break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. 
Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com, wise.com. When we describe our political divisions here in the 21st century, we still use this language we borrowed from the previous century, you know, liberal, conservative, left, right. As we try to find terminology to accurately describe our political situation today, is the divide between globalism and nationalism the most important cleavage to focus on? Actually, I, I don't think it's the cleavage. I think there are very dangerous politicians who try to convince people that this is the cleavage. Okay. The story they tell is that you have a choice between national loyalty and global cooperation. If you support global cooperation, you're part of some dangerous globalist elite or something which is out to destroy us. And the whole premise is wrong. There is no contradiction between nationalism and globalism. If you support global cooperation, it doesn't mean that you are a traitor or that you're not patriotic. Nationalism is not about hating foreigners. Nationalism is about loving your compatriots, taking care of them. And there are many situations when in order to take good care of your compatriots, you must cooperate with foreigners. You know, with climate change, it's obvious. No country can solve this by itself. If you want to protect your people from hurricanes and desertification and things like that, you need to cooperate with other countries. Similarly, you want to stop the next pandemic, you need to cooperate with other countries. And uh, this doesn't mean that we need to establish a world government. This is a terrible idea. It's completely ineffectual. 
I think it's good that the world is divided into 200 or so independent nation states. It should remain like this for the foreseeable future. But that doesn't preclude cooperating with other countries on common problems from climate change to stopping nuclear weapons to regulating dangerous new technologies like artificial intelligence or like bioengineering. I mean, the whole binary thinking that we have to choose, this is the dangerous thing. Who do you think benefits from posing that as a false choice that we have to choose between, you know, globalism and nationalism? Because many people do pose that as an absolute zero-sum choice. Who benefits from that? Populist leaders who present themselves as the protectors of their people by objecting to all kinds of global cooperation because it, you know, it makes their, their life much easier. To prove that I'm a great patriot, I don't need to actually improve your life. I don't need to provide you with better healthcare, with better education or anything like that. No, I just need to make these patriotic speeches against foreigners and rail against the global elites and so forth and present myself as protecting the people from this danger. And this is much easier. It's much easier to give these kinds of speeches than to actually do the hard work of building a functional healthcare system. Yeah, and I do feel like the felt loss of individual agency is really at the heart of this. And not just felt, actual loss of agency. And this is something you, you've written about, mm-hmm. certainly um, in your, your wonderful book, Sapiens, where you know in the agricultural revolution, you talk about how the collective makes this giant leap forward where suddenly the community has more power, more capacity, mm-hmm. but the average individual becomes this spoke in a wheel of this new society and the individual's life becomes less interesting and more boring and they lose agency, but the elites prospered then and now. And that's certainly a similar story, I feel like, is playing out now. Yeah, but the thing is, the key question about how to prevent this, how to make sure that the new revolutions of the 21st century, they benefit everybody, that's the key question. And they could. They absolutely could. Yeah, and and presenting this in terms of, again, nationalism versus globalism, it's a complete mistake. You think about the pandemic. So in my country, in Israel, we got mostly the Pfizer vaccine, which was developed by a German company founded by Turkish immigrants to Germany and then mass-produced by an American company, Pfizer. And it would have been crazy for some Israeli populist leader to say, no, 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 no. We don't want this globalist conspiracy against us. We are waiting to have a patriotic Israeli vaccine. And only then we take it. No. I mean, you want to protect the health of your people. You make use of the inventions of people in other countries. This is not new. The key thing is not to reject foreign inventions or, or foreign discoveries or whatever. The key thing is to look at how we construct our society to make sure that the next wave of inventions and discoveries, it doesn't benefit just a small layer of billionaires and high-tech entrepreneurs, but really benefits everybody. And here, you know, a key part of that is governments taking money in taxes from the billionaires and the corporations and using it to provide better healthcare or better services to the citizens. Of course, nobody that I know of, at least, thinks of the kind of communist extreme of just abolishing private property and and government taking everything. This has been tried and proven to be a complete disaster for everybody. 
Um, we just need to strike the right balance. Well, your new book is interesting to me because it's aimed at young people. And I wonder, is that a reflection of your belief, not just in teaching history to kids so that they know what happened, mm -hmm. but really in reminding them and us about the constructedness of all of these different stories, that they're not, in fact, transcendent gifts handed down to us from the heavens in stone, that we can write the stories, we're writing the stories that shape our lives. Absolutely. Like I look at the images now coming from Iran, for instance, and you see there are teenage girls rebelling against one of the most oppressive regimes in the world and basically telling the Ayatollahs, we don't want your story. They try to force them to wear certain things, behave in certain ways, and they ask, why? I mean, okay, we understand this is how it was in the last 40 years, but uh, it wasn't always like this, and we can change it, and we want to change it. And this is part of the power of every young, younger generation that the older generation has already used to the way the world is. Just thinking about an alternative is difficult. But for young people, they question things far more. They don't take for granted the way things are. And they are therefore often a very strong force for change. Now again, we don't need to go to extreme with change. We need to preserve some basic institutions, infrastructure, otherwise society falls apart. So, you know, managing a society is like driving a car. You need one leg on the fuel pedal, you need the other leg on the brakes. If you just press the fuel pedal for all your worth, then it's going to be an accident. But if you just press the brakes all the time, you don't go anywhere. Well, the thing about myths is that they do sort of cut both ways. You know, they work because we believe them, and that means we become invested in them. Often the people who benefit from them become especially invested in those stories. And then that means we can have a hard time moving beyond them. I think that's kind of the dynamic you're describing in Iran. Yes. And again, we need to be careful. You can't just throw everything because then society collapses. And, you know, this is part of the importance of conservatives in society. But again, they have their leg on the brake and it's very important. I think one of the problems today in the US and in much of the world is that there are no longer any conservatives. Like maybe Liz Cheney, I don't know. But most people who call themselves conservatives or at least conservative parties, they have recently committed suicide and have turned themselves into a radical revolutionary party. Well, it's reactionaries. That's what we have now. And it's not quite the same thing as conservative, or it doesn't have to be. But th they want to destroy the institutions and traditions. Right. You know, the traditional role of conservative parties in society was to preserve institutions and traditions. Don't mess with them. Don't change them too quickly. You're not smart enough to change things as quickly as you think. And, you know, you go back to the birth of modern conservatism, Edmund Burke and the French Revolution, they look at the storming of the Bastille and they say, this will end badly. These people, they have these great ideas about how to construct a new society. But reality is so complicated, they will get it wrong, it will end badly, and they were justified to a large extent. And then you fast forward to the 6th of January, and you have conservatives who are cheering instead of kind of holding their heads in terror. They have abdicated their job as the protectors of society's institutions, and they are now all against institutions. Institutions are banned. 
And it becomes the job of the progressive party to protect institutions and traditions. And it does a lousy job because it's, <laughs> this is not their job to protect institutions. So the end result is, again, with the car metaphor, you have two legs on the fuel pedal and no leg on the brakes. And this is leading to an accident. What do you think is the biggest problem facing humanity now? I mean, there are many problems. The common denominator to all of them is the lack of global cooperation, because I can list the big problems. It's global inequality, it's climate change, it's the danger of nuclear war, it's the rise of dangerous new technologies like AI and like bioengineering. But what's common to all of them is that you cannot, we cannot deal with them unless we have global cooperation on them. And what we are seeing in recent years is a sharp increase in global tension and really the collapse of the international community. So there is less and less cooperation, which means that we can't solve any of these problems. Like the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a perfect example, but now even the Green Party in much of Europe says we have no choice. We have to go back to coal because we have, first of all, to face the Russian threat. And they are right. I mean, I'm not saying they are wrong. They have really very little choice. So if countries decide to invest their resources in fighting war and invading their neighbors, then we are not going to solve climate change. That's very, very clear. Well, this is, this is really the problem. You know, we've created this globalized society with billions of people. And because technology has become so central, because technology develops quicker and quicker, we have more and more people with no obvious role in the economy. And that is part of what is fueling these nationalist insurgencies around the world, which is making global cooperation that much harder. And I, I realize the world has always changed, but the rate of change is so much quicker and so much turns on that pace of change. It just seems interminably destabilizing. Uh, yeah, the pace of change is just accelerating. So, you know, the 20th century had witnessed far, far more changes than previous centuries. And we are now in this huge global turmoil, and it's just going to accelerate further. It's so difficult to maintain any kind of, again, institutions, rules, cooperation, when the ground under your feet just keeps shifting. But that's our task. I mean, if we can't do that, then, you know, as a species, we will not survive. When humans took over the world, because we can cooperate better than any other animal, we use this cooperation to invent and create more and more stuff, but that puts tension on our ability to cooperate. And uh, if we can't find a way to keep cooperating, then our biggest strength will turn out to be the cause of our destruction. Yuval Harari is worried about AI. But what exactly is he worried about? That's what I'll ask him after one last short break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? 
Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to AI, which you mentioned, are you one of those people who worries about the technological singularity, or is it more of a, a humanist concern about the loss of human agency? I think AI is very, very dangerous because it's we haven't seen anything like it in human history. It's the first invention of humans that takes power away from humans. All previous inventions, whether it's stone knives in the Stone Age or nuclear bombs, they actually make humans stronger because the decision how to use the tool is always a human decision. A nuclear bomb cannot decide what to do with it. It's a human that decides. AI is the first technology ever that can make decisions about its own usage and also make decisions about the lives of people. And it's already happening today. If you apply to a bank to get a loan, in more and more banks, it's an AI that decides whether to give you a loan. You apply for university to get a place or to a job, increasingly it's an AI making the decision. And we haven't seen anything yet because AI is just taking its very first tiny baby steps. Actual AI, not a science fiction or a theoretical AI, but real AI is something like, I don't know, 10 years old, the AI revolution. We haven't seen anything yet. It's like, I don't know, we are in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Somebody just invented the first steam engine in England in the 18th century. They use it to pump water out of coal mines. It's extremely inefficient. And people can't imagine, you know, networks of railroads and giant cities with chimneys and factories. They can't imagine it. We are in the same place now. And one place where we can already see how this new invention can completely change our life is that already within 10 years, we are on the verge of annihilating human privacy. Since the beginning of time, humans always had a certain measure of privacy. Yes, you always had kings and dictators who wanted to spy on us and monitor on us. They didn't have the technical ability to do it. Even if you live in a totalitarian regime like the Soviet Union, so Stalin wants to spy on everybody, yes. He can't because there are 200 million Soviet citizens. You don't have 200 million KGB agents that can follow each and every one of us every day. Even if you do have the agents, at the end of the day, each agent, like you have your agent, followed you around all your day. At the end of the day, this agent writes a paper report about what you did, what you said, who you met. Now, this paper report is sent to headquarters in Moscow. They get every day 200 million paper reports. Somebody needs to read and analyze them. Nobody can do that. They don't have the analysts. So it's even Soviet citizens had some privacy. Today, the technology changes this. You don't need millions of human agents. We carry the agents in our pocket. We paid for them. The smartphones are the agents that follow us around everywhere. And the microphones and the cameras and all that. And you don't need human analysts to make sense of the ocean of data they are accumulating. 
You have AI. But does it have to be that way? I mean, these things are tools, the machines, the algorithms, the AI technologies, they're still tools. We invented them. We still, at least, decide how to deploy them, what to hand over to them, etc. So in what sense is that capacity lost? Or do you think we've already moved past that? No, we still have a chance to regulate this, but we have to act quickly. At present, it's still humans who decide how to deploy AI. If we pass a law that banks are not allowed to use AI to decide who to give a loan to, there is a law. We can still do that, but we don't have much time. It is a human choice. And you see different regimes going in different directions. So the Chinese are going all the way with this uh, dystopian total surveillance regime where everybody is surveyed all the time. Europe is trying to take a different course with strong regulations about privacy, about data collection, the GDPR, and so forth. So it's important to realize that technology is never deterministic. Sometimes people in places like Silicon Valley, they tell you they believe in technological determinism. Once the technology is there, you can't do anything about it. And this is always false. You always have a choice. Well, as a political theorist, I'm usually the first question I want to ask in these sorts of conversations is, well, who's going to be empowered by these changes? And if you're right, in the 21st century, it's going to be the people who control the data. And that's the state or tech billionaires. I don't know. But that that is very worrisome, I think, for obvious reasons. But it can be regulated. You know, in ancient world, the people who controlled land controlled politics, the big landowners and aristocrats. But you could pass laws in order to limit ownership of land. In the 19th and 20th century, the key economic asset, it was no longer land. Now it was industrial capacity. So the people who control the railroads, the factories, they control society. But again, workers can unionize. You can pass regulations against child labor. You can limit what these big industrialists can and cannot do. The same with data. Yes, now data is more important than industrial capacity or than land, but it can also be regulated. So for instance, you know, we have old regulations. Like you think about my relation with my personal physician, my family doctor. She has enormous personal data about me that nobody else knows. Very, very intimate and private things. She is not allowed to use this data for any purpose other than to help me or in an anonymous way to say, do medical research that helps other people. She is not allowed to, for instance, use the data in order to manipulate me. She is not allowed to sell it to a company. Just think of the scandal if it turns out that personal physicians sell the data of their patients to companies. But with the big tech giants, we take it for granted that they can do that. Yes, they take my personal data and sell it to third parties or use it to manipulate me in all kinds of ways. Why? I mean, <laughs> it's not a law of nature that they are allowed to do it. It's up to us to decide how we regulate the data market. And that is part of the problem because the ability now to divert attention and manipulate public opinion is extraordinary. I don't have a grim view of human nature, but I do think that human beings are deeply impressionable plastic social creatures and under the right conditions we're capable of almost anything which means as our ability to understand and manipulate ourselves becomes more powerful so will our ability to do enormous damage to ourselves 
in the world? I mean, not to be too dystopian here, but at what point do you think we just become fodder for our technology? We are not there yet, but if we are not careful, it can happen. Yeah. And because, as I said before, AI is different from every previous technology, it can make decisions by itself. And therefore, it can, within a few decades, it can be completely out of our control. And then there is no turning back. In historical time, that's not even a blink. Yeah. That's not a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time. The moment like you establish a totalitarian regime with total surveillance, zero privacy, increasingly all decisions taken by some central algorithms, you cannot escape that from within the system. Maybe from outside, somebody can come and destroy it, but not from within. Um, if you think about someplace, you know, like China. So you have all these dystopian science fiction movies about AI taking control. The easiest place it can happen is in a place like China. Just imagine a situation when the Chinese Communist Party increasingly gives an AI control over decisions about party appointments. There are 80 million members in the Chinese Communist Party. They have to kind of every year decide on millions of positions. This is very complicated. The person at the top doesn't know all these people. Now, the temptation would be very, very big to increasingly rely on some kind of you know, social credit system and an AI to give ranks to party members in a way that nobody really understands. And very soon, the AI fills the party with its own nominees. Now, I don't think that the AI is conscious or trying to do something on purpose, but we know that AIs can be as biased as human beings. We now know AI can be racist, so I would do a, I don't know, a science fiction movie about a totalitarian regime being taken over by an AI that nobody can oppose because there are no checks and balances in the system. You cannot go to the courts. You cannot go. There is no independent press. When the AI that gives people scores identifies, among other things, who are the enemies of the people. And if anybody says that the system is malfunctioning, immediately they're enemy of the people. So you cannot resist it. A, a lot of people are using tools and gadgets and machines right now, and they think they're tools for them, but they're tools of the machines and gadgets. They just don't know that they're being manipulated. They don't know that they're playthings in that way because the illusion of choice and freedom is very strong. And that's, I think, a dangerous place. Yes, but again, we should also be careful about going with this direction too far because I, I hear sometimes, you know, people on the radical left saying things like, the US is a totalitarian country or even Denmark is a totalitarian country. They don't know what a totalitarian country really is if they say such things. The easiest way to check is look at the headlines of the main newspapers and TV stations. If you live in a country where there are headlines that in major outlets that attack the government and the head of government, then this is a good sign. Don't look at something like elections. Elections are just a ritual. At least they can turn into a ritual. They have elections in Russia. They have elections in Iran. It's completely rigged. So the place to look is, for instance, they don't have newspapers in Russia right now that criticize Putin's disastrous decision to invade Ukraine. They don't have TV stations in Moscow, Russian TV stations, that criticize the decision to go to war. I mean, if you look deeply at your 
desires, it's, it's your ambitions in life, you always find that they are influenced by propaganda, by religion, by things you read, by other people. We are not free to choose our desires. That's true. But that's always true. We should be able to differentiate that from a situation when we do want something and the government prevents it or the secret police prevents it, puts us in jail if, if, if we do it. My sense of view is that you, in a very deliberate way, avoid striking a, an overtly optimistic or pessimistic view of the future, which suggests, among other things, that you're at least still open to the potential that we can still kind of steer this thing one way or the other. I wonder how you draw the line between your predictions, if you want to call them that, about the future on the one hand, and just another kind of myth-making on the other. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I think you do what you do in a very self-aware way. I just wonder if you ever think of your work as an attempt to create new myths for a new era or lay the foundations for what might be new myths for a new world. My basic understanding of history is that it's not deterministic. The past wasn't deterministic, and the future isn't deterministic. You look at things like Christianity taking over the Roman Empire, or the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. These were very, very unexpected things. They were not deterministic. A few small things turning out differently, and nobody today would know who Jesus was or who Lenin was. Maybe just a few historians who specialize in a particular subject. It's the same with the future. It's not written anywhere. It depends on the decisions that we make in the coming days, in the midterm elections, in the coming months, in the coming years. My job, I see, my job as a historian is not to predict the future. First of all, it's impossible because it's not deterministic. Secondly, even if you could prophesize the future correctly, it would have been pointless because if something is bound to happen, what's the point of telling people about it? They can't change it. I think my job is to take the long-term historical perspective in order to draw people's attention to various possibilities, various scenarios that might happen, which maybe they don't think about. Like people tend to think linearly and to focus on just a few possibilities. And I want to kind of broaden the horizon to draw a map of a lot more possibilities that could happen in the future to especially warn people about the more dangerous possibilities in the hope that we make good, wise decisions now so that these possibilities are not realized. I would say the dispiriting thing, at least for me in America at the moment, is that we are having these elections. And if you look at the sorts of things we're worrying about at the moment, if you look at the sorts of things we're expending moral energy on, our election isn't about these fundamental questions about the direction of our society. We're arguing about critical race theory or Hunter Biden's laptop or some other bullshit. And I worry that we're going to look back, you know, in a few decades, if we make it there and go, what an obscene waste of moral energy and attention. And we just sort of, I don't know, sleptwalked into catastrophe. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that this election is basically about the very existence of democracy. I think if people make the wrong decisions, then the next presidential elections could be the last democratic elections in US history. And it's not a prophecy. I don't think it will happen. What's the chances? I don't know, 20%, 25%, but it's still a very high chance. 
if you think what is at stake. And what people often don't realize is that it's easy to lose democracy. It's very, very hard to get it back. If you think about, I don't know, something like the price of gas, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. Democracy is not like that. When it's down, it doesn't go up again. Or at least it takes a very, very long time if you lose it to go back to it. And the basis of democracy is the existence of self-correction mechanisms. That you can have at your head of the state a strong man, a dictator, who makes a lot of good decisions that improve the economy and make a lot of things better. But sooner or later, this person will make a wrong decision with perhaps catastrophic results and will not agree to admit it, will not step aside to let somebody else try a different policy, and there will not be any mechanism to remove this person or to change the course the country is going. This is what happened with Putin. Then he got to power through more or less democratic elections. And he made some quite good decisions for Russia in his early years. And then he used that to cement his power. And now they are stuck with him. Now they can't vote him out. It's impossible. And again, there are no free media. There are no free courts. And they are stuck with them. And this is now happening to the Chinese that basically just appointed Xi Jinping a new emperor for life. China was not a democracy previously, but the Chinese Communist Party, which is again a very complex, a very wise organization in many ways, with 80 million members constructed over many generations, it had its own internal checks and balances. And what she has done in recent years is to dismantle the internal checks and balances, the internal self-correcting mechanisms of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think this is what is really at stake in the U.S. elections right now. This is the only thing that really matters. Do you preserve self-correcting mechanisms or do you put in power people that will not agree to move aside if they make a mistake and if people want to change? I'm very much against you know telling people that they shouldn't care about inflation or high gas prices. I know that stuff matters, but my God, if we don't have a functioning democratic civilization, then ultimately nothing else matters. We've got to find a way to prioritize that alongside these other real material concerns. Well, look, I, I guess I'll just end by saying, you know, one thing I do love about history is that it teaches that nothing lasts, <laughs> everything changes. And, and that means we'll change, our civilization will change, but not taking these things for granted is necessary if there's any hope of steering our future in a non-catastrophic direction. And hopefully conversations like this and books like yours help us do that. This has been a real treat. The new book is called Unstoppable Us, How Humans Took Over the World. Your previous book, Sapiens, is one of my favorite in the last decade. I recommend that as well. Yuval Noah Harari, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. So what'd you think of this one? 
I loved it. I love this stuff. I love macro history. I love huge sweeping claims about this or that phenomenon or event. Harari covers a ton of ground. We covered a ton of ground. Do you think he's too optimistic? Is he worried about the right things? Am I worried about the right things? Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, leave a review, tweet about it, post on Insta, whatever. All of it helps. We really appreciate it. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.